Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. Wendy, we would be remiss if we did not start this episode uh, by discussing the death of George Romero a little bit. Oh my goodness. So, uh, Night of Living Dead, uh, obviously we talked about it in our zombie episodes and my nightmare episodes and like a whole bunch of different things. We've discussed George Romero and his work a bunch of times. Yes, and its influence on you, Mike, as a young child. <laughs> right, as it's the way it terrified me my entire life. But George Romero passed away on Sunday... Uh, July, was that the 16th? Yep, Sunday, July 16th, George Murrow passed away. Cancer, he was 77, and a great filmmaker. And we'll probably do a, a full tribute to him because he's done a whole, I mean, his paranormal themes from uh, obviously Creep Show, you know, <laughs> which was great, the, the, the dead movies. Then he dealt with vampires and Martin, and he even had the uh, the King Arthur stuff and Knight Riders. And wow. right, so he's done a, just a whole bunch of a great stuff. Some stuff, like monkey shines and everything like that. It's best not to talk ill of the dead. Um, but uh, anyway, he was a really great filmmaker who changed film. You know, he really did. He created his own his own genre, his own kind of monster. Yeah, and definitely an influence on us. Yeah, and right. <laughs> a lot of our friends. <laughs> no, no, right. And we've all talked about uh, George Romero. And obviously, the most successful show on cable right now is The Walking Dead, and that's basically just. I think Robert Kirkman, uh, the, the creator of The Walking Dead, he said that he wanted to show people what happens after The Night of the Living Dead ends. And that's the whole, you know, that's the whole. So without him, wow. um, all these English actors who come over and work for AMC wouldn't have a job. <laughs> right. So anyway, uh, George Romero, uh, RIP, really a wonderful influence. And one of the reasons I also wanted to talk about today is because we're talking about scary TV shows. Oh. And George Romero was a producer on Tales from the Dark Side, if you Ooh, remember that. Oh, that show terrified yeah. me as a child. Right, and that was my favorite scary TV show. That one, and there's this one called Monsters. Uh, <laughs> that was like a, one in syndication that was, in you know, from today, I'm like, well, that was pretty cheesy. But when yeah. I was 10, I was like, this is awesome. Um, but, <laughs> but he was a producer on Tales from the Dark Side. And the beginning, I couldn't even watch the opening of Tales from the Dark Side, because it's like, wow. there is a dark side. And all of a sudden, it would switch to black and white. And it was just, I, you see it now, and it's a super corny yeah. like, video, like somebody just hits it on uh, the Amiga or something like that at the time. You know, they just hit the button, and it switches over to black and white. But that would be the point where I would run out of the room. Oh, my gosh. Well, the one that really got me as a child was uh, Tales from the Crypt. Oh, well, see, and we, we didn't have HBO we in my didn't house. Either, we, but it's a highfalutin HBO house. No, we didn't have it either. But when we would be <laughs> traveling or something and they're, they'd have HBO in the hotel. Uh, right. And our parents would go off to dinner or whatever. And then my sister and I would immediately switch to HBO and then scare ourselves silly. Oh, that's great. Oh, that's a lot. Of, I, can, I can just imagine that, too, because I can't imagine like Saturday <laughs> nights like, hey, everybody, let's get together around the, camp, around the fire and watch Tales <laughs> from the Crypt in the Stads house. Right. Uh, no, that's awesome. But uh, one of the reasons we're bringing up horror TV today is there's a convention coming up next week 
Yes, uh, end of the month. End of the oh, right, end of the month. And are you going to that convention? I right? will be there. Yes. Okay. What's what's it all about? What's it all? Well, about? it's uh, Midsummer Scream, and actually, we have a special guest today. We've got Scott Marcus from whatsyourghoststory.com, one of our favorite experts on hauntings and also a very well-versed in the Los Angeles scene and hauntings there, too. Yeah, right. He was the L.A. ghost guide. Yes. Welcome, Scott. Thank you for having me back yet again. (laughs) So perhaps you could tell us a little bit more about the event because you're going to be moderating a panel there. Yeah, yeah. Well, Midsummer Scream in general is a really fun annual event. Uh, You know, we don't want to wait for October to start celebrating. No way. It's our favorite holiday. Every every month. I could do it every month. and I think kind of we do, but uh, Midsummer Scream is quite the kickoff because it is a, a convention down in Long Beach, California, that is just all, about all things Halloween. So it's where people would go to buy the supplies for their haunted house attractions and stuff like oh, that. Sure. You have the makeup artist showing off their abilities and all that. Oh, I can't wait. And uh, and of course, you know, you can't have Halloween without scary movies and scary everything, really. Right. <laughs> right. Media. Yes. So yeah, I'll be there moderating a panel. I'm very, very excited about it. You know, I, I've worked in film for a long time, and in this time, I've been able to meet a lot of really remarkable, great people. And uh, one of those was a creator of one of my favorite shows growing up, and and maybe somebody that should take the blame for uh, <laughs> what I've okay. become, which is someone who's really into writing and really into scary movies and and ghosts and all that. And that is uh, my good friend, Mr. DJ McHale, who is joining us today. He's the creator of Are You Afraid of the Dark and a TV show that we worked on together, Flight 29 Down. Not to mention that he also uh, wrote the Pendragon series, a sci-fi fantasy 10 book series. So uh, welcome to the show, DJ. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. This is fun. I love talking about spooky stuff. Yes. And I should mention that we didn't mention Are You Afraid of the Dark because Mike and I were a little older um, when it came around, but I did watch plenty of it. And loved it because my brother was the perfect age for that. So he was always watching Nickelodeon and mm-hmm. loved the series. <laughs> Thank you. That was, uh, um, it, it, I never would have, I feel a little bit like George Romero. Not, I don't mean to put myself in that same pantheon, but uh, if you had asked me 25 years ago, if I'd be talking about the show 25 years later, I, <laughs> I, I can't imagine it, but it's kind of cool actually. So, so <laughs> this amazing. is great. Well, it's interesting. I wanted to bring you on to talk about uh, maybe paranormal experiences you had or anything like that that maybe led to inspiration for episodes or the show in general and it's funny because one of the episodes i watched recently the tale of the unfinished painting Uh was about where does inspiration come from and all that and of course it starred a very young kaylee from firefly jewel oh yeah jewel slather yeah however you say her last name right but there's so many big people that were in it when they were just kids it's so fun to watch now as we were just talking about mr ryan gosling who was in an episode <laughs> right we were talking about the tale of what station one 109, 109 109 yeah. and you know i hadn't seen them before because we didn't have nickelodeon and i was a little too old but then i started watching them this week and i think that one of the things that i enjoyed most was some of the callbacks you had to obviously more famous you know, horror movies and stuff like um the first one i watched was midnight madness with the theater the movie theater sure right and Nosferatu. Right. Obviously, <laughs> out comes Max Shrek out of the movie. And so let's start a little bit with that. Like, what was your upbringing in this kind of genre stuff? Well, I, you know, I, if, if I had a therapist, you can ask my therapist to, to say, you know, why do you write this kind of stuff? Um, and I don't really know. I think, you know, you folks are, are into the supernatural and the spooky and all that kind of stuff. And I think you either have that gene or you don't. And, and, so I've tried to analyze 
over the years, why is it that I, I that stuff comes out? I remember I, I read someplace once that Steve, someone asked Stephen King, they said, why do you write scary stories? And he said, I don't know, that's what comes out. And and it's true. Mm-hmm. Any writer will tell you that, that, that you just write what comes out. And I am not going to write a romantic comedy. It will not happen. It will not come from these it, fingers. It won't end happy if you do. It, it won't, <laughs> someone will die in the, at some point. Um, <laughs> but but um, in talking about supernatural experiences, um, there, there are probably a lot of reasons why I'm drawn to this kind of stuff, why we're all drawn to this kind of stuff. But um, I, And I'm sure you've heard some variation of this story before, but... I I grew up in a haunted house, and uh, I truly I, I truly did. And believe me, trust me. Even though I write all this stuff, I am the first person to be skeptical of this kind of stuff. I am the first person to when someone tells me a story, uh, you know, in theory, I'm like, wow, that's really cool. I believe that. But as soon as they tell me the reality of it, I'm like, yeah, right. You know. Well, <laughs> well let's set it up. So where did you where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Connecticut. And uh, the, the town I grew up in was incorporated literally in 1640. So, so there's a lot of history going on back there. Mm-hmm. Um, the house I grew up in was probably a couple of hundred years old or a hundred years old at the time. Um, it, it, it's so funny. I live in Los Angeles now, and, it, and it's so amazing to my, my favorite line from the, the TV show uh, from the movie uh, L.A. Story with Steve Martin. Where mm-hmm. it was, and I, I saw it when I was still living back east, and I mistakenly thought it was a comedy. <laughs> it's actually 100% real life. And one of the things I've always remembered that I thought was funny when I first saw it is Steve Martin is, is his character is driving someone around Los Angeles, and he's looking around and he's saying, You know, some of these buildings are over 20 years old. <laughs> <laughs> Which is I quote that line all the time. That's one of my favorite lines too. Yeah, I, I'm sure you did when you were doing the the ghost tours. I'm sure you yeah, did. Exactly. I mean, that's. Uh, but but back east, some of those buildings are over 200 years old. And so the house I grew up in, um, all of my family, we all had experiences in this house. I mean, none of them were like poltergeisty, you know, coffins coming up from the ground or anything like that. Thank God. Um, (laughs) But it wasn't, they were all kind of eerie, some explainable, some inexplicable. And it it wasn't until we moved out of that house that we all started sharing these stories. It was almost like they went unspoken Mm. because they were just too creepy to acknowledge that they were real. Um, but it, my whole family in talking about it afterwards, we're like, yeah, I, this happened to me and that happened to me. And, and I could share some of those that, that, um, and, and there were certainly a lot of instances of hearing things and bumps and you know, all that kind of stuff, all that can be explained away, I think. Right. Um, <laughs> my mother, probably the most, um, uh, telling thing about this came from my mother because my mother was the most pragmatic uh, practical, I don't believe in anything person, but she had a couple of stories. She was a nihilist. She, yes. <laughs> it, it, what, and if I knew what a nihilist was, I would, I would totally agree with it. <laughs> yeah, I'm a writer. I don't know what these things are. Um, she had two experiences. One was she saw a woman, um, looking at her, she was outside looking up at the house and she saw the image of a woman looking out of this window at her. Um, this woman did not exist in this house. And she didn't tell me about it until after we moved out of the house. 
another one that I remember so well, this is an old house now, remember? It was 100 years old mm -hmm. or whatever. There were no wall switches. There were no flip light type things. There were only pull chains on overhead lights. Oh, and sure. going from the from the first floor to the second floor, there was a pull chain at the bottom of the stairs, and there was a pull chain at the top of the stairs. And my mother was the one who always went to bed last at night. So what it was dark because it's night. And and what she would do is she actually had a long string or a double string so that she could in, walk down the first floor corridor, turn on the light, turn on the light upstairs with the long string, so she wouldn't have to walk upstairs in the dark. Mm -hmm. then she would walk upstairs and then she'd be able to turn off the downstairs light with the long string and then, and then walk into her bedroom and then turn off the outside light with this thing. And she explained it, which makes sense. Totally. It's, it was a safety thing. It was, it was dark and she didn't want to walk up the stairs in the dark. It wasn't until after we moved out of this house that she said, I just never felt comfortable in that second floor hallway. There was just something wow. odd about that hallway huh. and, and, and coming from her that's like saying, oh, my God, coffins are coming out of the ground. Yeah, <laughs> you know, that's, sure. <laughs> that's the kind of person she was. Um, the experiences that I had, I, I had two. Um, one that could be explained away. The second one, I cannot explain it in any way, shape, or form. Nice. Um, the, the one that could be explained away is I was a little kid. I was two or three years old, whatever. I woke up in the middle of the night bad dream, whatever it was. I don't know why. Um, but I got in bed with my parents. So I remember lying in bed between my two parents and something woke me up. And I remember, God, it was like it was yesterday. I remember I was on my stomach. So I remember pushing myself up on my hands and looking out into that second floor hallway through the door of my parents' bedroom. And I saw this dark apparition shadow float by the door. Mm. At which point, I, God, I remember this so I just, I just, whoop, I buried my head in the pillow and forced myself oh. to go back to sleep. Mm -hmm. Now, that can be explained away. Maybe I was dreaming. Um, maybe we lived kind of on a main road, and a lot of times cars would drive by at night and the headlights would cause shadows on the wall, you know, so that, or maybe it was something not like that. But you'd think if it was that scenario, though, that's something you'd be used to seeing, though. Well, but the, the shadows yes, cast by the headlights. Yep, yep. Well, but I was only three, so I wasn't that used to it. <laughs> so yeah. When you, when you remember though. it, though. But I remember. When you remember it. it, though. Do you remember a sound or anything, nope. or just the shadow, or was there any just the shadow? Smell of I remember it, right? Yeah. Or any any kind of other sensory? I know that's a reach. Well, just being struck by the fact that there was no sound, and that it was definitely floating. It wasn't walking. You know, there wasn't mm -hmm. a, it wasn't a bouncing up and down, walking down the corridor or the hallway. It was a silent floating thing. And my, my, in fact, I used that moment in the pilot episode of, are you afraid of the dark? Uh, the Fantastic. first episode of, are you afraid of the dark opens with a kid lying in bed and his bedroom door, uh, his closet door of his bedroom opens up. And this black apparition, which was my memory of what the thing, it was almost like the, the Grim Reaper looking kind of thing, came floating out of the, uh, the, the bedroom, uh, the closet. And, and I actually mixed two of my phobias at this point. When I was a kid, I used to dream about the Frankenstein monster all the time. Yeah. Okay. And, and I, it was often enough that in my dream, I remember being aware enough to thinking and saying, Oh, not again. Uh, 
and, you broke the fourth wall in your own dream. Exactly. To myself. <laughs> you know, sometimes you're in a dream, but you're not. You're like, you know, self-aware. You're observing. So in that episode of, of Are You Afraid? In the very first scene of the very first Are You Afraid of the Dark, I have this kid lying in his bed and the closet door opens up and this black apparition floats out and the kid eyes open up and he just says, oh, no, not again. So wow. it was oh, absolutely that's a chilling blind. thought. Too. Well, also, here's the scoop. Are You Afraid of the Dark is not fiction. It is a historical drama. <laughs> well, then I, I totally ripped off another movie by, by having the kid sitting up bolt upright. You know, the, ah, waking up. And it's morning, and it's fine, and it's gone. And he turns around, and the apparition is right there in broad daylight. Yeah. Nice. Uh, which was totally American Werewolf in London. Uh, <laughs> just to go into the dream and he wakes up oh what a horrible dream oh no it's not a dream um so uh so that that was the one uh, moment i had that that can be explained away i don't know what it was the one i cannot explain away and i actually used it i, I wrote a spooky trilogy called morpheus road which was a ghost story and um a book series and i used this scene in this book series almost exactly as what happened to me and and this cannot be explained away by the vague memory of a toddler because I was 16 years old, so I remember this. Mm. This was real. Um, I was home alone. <laughs> I was gonna be home alone. I was, <laughs> I was in my bedroom, and the door was closed, and I had my Stratocaster, and I was trying to learn a Jimi Hendrix song. Now, this was the olden days, so it was a record player. It was vinyl, which actually suddenly new again, I guess, I don't know. So, right. so I have the Jimi Hendrix record, and I'm trying to learn Foxy Lady on my Stratocaster. So I had the needle on the record and I'm sitting right next to the stereo and the music is playing and I thought I heard something that was above and beyond the music. So I lifted up the needle and there's nothing there. Put the needle back down, started to play a little bit more and I heard something, I, I can't even describe what it was. It was just a sound that didn't make sense to the music. Hmm. And, and, I can't describe it any more than that. It was just something else going on. I lifted up the needle again. Nothing. Did it several times thinking, I'm hearing something that's going on here. And until the last time. The last time I lifted up the needle and I heard, I swear to God, as plain as day, it sounded as if someone was out in that hallway, the hallway, sitting on the floor with their back against my bedroom door. It sounded like someone stood up and their back brushed against the door as they were standing up. Then they sighed and footsteps walked away down. Oh my gosh. Uh, goosebumps. Man. <laughs> no, no that, that's, not, that's not like the rattling of a window or the no. curtains going. This is a very specific, very real sound. Yeah, yeah. Of course, my mind immediately doesn't go to, oh my God, the place is haunted. My mind went to, my freaking brother-in-law is here. My sister and brother-in-law were visiting, and he's the kind of guy that would do stuff like that. He would, you know, he'd try to mess with you. So, mm -hmm. so I opened up the door, nothing there. I then proceeded to do exactly what you're not supposed to do in every horror movie. Yeah. <laughs> I, I then searched the house, but expecting to find my brother-in-law hiding behind a door or hiding in a closet. I searched every closet under every bed. I had like a weapon that I was going around feeling things, <laughs> going between clothes of closets. I searched the entire house. No, And, and I wasn't afraid. I was nervous because I kept expecting my brother-in-law to jump out at me. <laughs> sure. That's how real it was. 
But the further I searched, the more I started to realize, oh my God, there's no one else here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what the heck was that? What was it? <laughs> yeah, right. the, the, the conclusion that my entire family drew from all of our experiences was that we knew someone who lived in that house who had died just before we moved in. Mm. It was an elderly woman named Rose McKeever. Mm. Rose, and, and my parents knew her actually, and she was a nice oh, old lady. Okay. Um, Rose died in the house. She died in my bedroom, oh, which is right oh. off that corridor. So, Here's your bedroom, DJ. Yeah, <laughs> Good night. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. It wasn't my bedroom. So, so my theory is that Rose didn't like Jimi Hendrix, <laughs> and she was just like, oh, what, what is going on with it?" Or, I think it's the opposite. Yeah, I think she was frustrated with you stopping the needle so often, right. or or she didn't like my playing, my version of it. Just like this there guy, there you go, yeah. <laughs> just like, uh, okay. so so I, I can't explain that. I, I mean, I it was so specific. It wasn't a vague notion. It wasn't a weird sound. It wasn't something to be explained away. It was specific. It was real. I was awake. I was sober. And and to this day, now that house is gone. So we'll oh, we'll never know what it was, but but to this day, and I don't know if things like that kind of led to my my uh, you know liking of the supernatural and my interest in the supernatural. It certainly didn't hurt by any means. Sure, um, yeah, certainly. But, but well, and and that's where like the first house you ever were in. Yeah, you said you were there obviously by three, if not earlier. It's interesting as you talked about. You didn't really talk about these things as a family until after you left. That to you was normal. That's what being at home was like. And then once you finally had moved out and had perspective of living in a not haunted place, that, then you see how remarkable the place was you had left behind. Mm-hmm. I also think that's interesting, the idea of using music as a trigger object, whether you meant to or not, to try to elicit some sort of response yeah, let's through see music. If, let's see if Rose McKeever hates that hippie music. Yeah, you know? like, <laughs> yeah it was. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know if it was... I think it's maybe it's also a release, too, where there may have been a certain amount of denial going on. Because, you know, sure. I mean, you're not going to say to someone, hey, I just saw a ghost last night because no one will believe you. So all of us. You're saying that to the wrong three, but yeah. Well, I, I, well unless I told you, then, yes. <laughs> then you'd say, really, uh, describe roses, what you look like. Um, but, but I think a lot of, and, and again, it wasn't an everyday occurrence either, too. Sure. It was just something that, that kind of we lived with and it was accepted and, and in our own way. Um, and again, it wasn't so dramatic that it was, it was coffins coming out of the soon-to-be-dug swimming pool. <laughs> and the last thing your mother wants to do is make it so her kids can't sleep. Sure. Yeah. Oh. You know, because your mom's going to be like, hey, you know, I saw, I saw a lady's form in the window last night. Good night. Yeah, right. <laughs> Pleasant dreams. Right. The last thing she does is she wants the kids to run into the bedroom every single night going, oh, my God, I saw her. <laughs> yeah. I, I think all that played, played into it. And, mm. and, and again, what, 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 we were bringing in uh, detectors to, to, you know, with, the, sure. with, you know <laughs> with Dan Aykroyd with the thing to figure out what it was. But, but, uh, right. but our equivalent of that was sitting around the kitchen table years later saying, you know, I had this thing happen to me once. And so I, I am absolutely convinced that whether it was Rose or not, I have no idea. We couldn't idea, her. but uh, certainly all fits, man. <laughs> there was something sure. going on there. Well, I, I was going to say, so you had some experiences and then, you know, you decided you wanted to break into writing, work in film, things like that. As you were going in there, were you thinking, I'm interested in writing genre stories or 
I'm interested in just writing stories and the genre ones happen to be the ones that sell or, I mean, what, what compelled you? Do you just wanted to make uh, horror stuff and fantasy and everything? Obviously with your book series, I mean, you're working on a ghost story trilogy and a sci-fi fantasy, tentology, decology, <laughs> um, then, uh, you know, you're compelled to work in the genre. But when, when you first got into it, was that, uh, were genre stories the kind you wanted to tell? Well, uh, it, it wasn't a conscious decision. It's kind of what I said about the Stephen King thing. It's, it's what came out and what came out most naturally. Believe me, I tried to write other things. Um, but what really came out were these kinds of stories. And, and beyond the, the, the supernatural experience in the house, that's what I was drawn to reading and watching as a kid, too. Um, God, here's another great memory or bad memory was uh, my sister and her boyfriend, n- not John, the wacky guys, pre-John, um, <laughs> took me to a matinee of Disney's The Sword in the Stone. You know, animated movie. Great movie. Mm-hmm. Um, the second feature, or the regular feature that day after the matinee, was a horror trilogy called Black Sabbath. It was three short stories, you know, kind of along the vein of uh, Tales from the Crypt, and, um, or, sure. uh, you know, but, but feature-length type thing. Uh, or at least the three together were feature-length. One of them starred Boris Karloff. Mm-hmm. Um, two of them I only have vague memories of, but the one I remember so well, it was about a, a nurse. It was like a period type thing. A nurse was called in because a medium had died, and she had to come in to prepare the body for, uh, for, uh, to, for a showing. And making a very long and creepy story short, the nurse steals the ring from the thing, which is a classic old story of... You steal something from an entity, the entity comes back because they want it right. back. Uh, that was an old, the tale of the golden arm, I think, was one of those things. I used it in Are You Afraid of the Dark with the tail flapping in the dark where they steal the nose from this clown and the clown comes to get it back. Um, I always go for the clown. Z- right, that's, Z- a, the clown. That's, that's a gimme. And, oh, actually, I, I had a clown experience, which tormented me too. But um, <laughs> the, the image I will always remember and haunted my dreams for so long from that movie was was it was such a great tense thing where you're back at the nurse's house and eerie things start happening and and you know what's going on she doesn't know what's going on but it just builds and it builds and builds and you wonder guys this all in her head is she imagining this thing is the did well no she was not then the medium came back and i just remember this image of this horrifying red-haired pasty-faced icky lady floating <laughs> towards her and ultimately, she ends up strangling herself because she's so fearful. That image haunted my dreams for till yesterday. I think I had probably had yeah. my last dream <laughs> wow. of this one. Um, and it was that theater that was my inspiration for, if you watch that Midnight Madness episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark? It was that theater that was inspiration for that theater in the Are You Afraid of the Dark episode. That old-fashioned, mm. it's the smell of stale popcorn. It's the, it's the grand stage. It's the thing. that It was that was the theater that it came from. Um, and and w- my friend Frank and I used to go to that theater when we were a little bit older to see these ridiculous foreign horror movies, none of which I've ever heard of before or heard of since. They were made in Yugoslavia. They were made in Italy. There are a lot of British films that were really nasty. I mean, just like, oh, my God. <laughs> well, when you talk about Black Sabbath, I mean, obviously, that was a name that inspired the band. I mean, so that movie also inspired the name of the band. And it also came from, 
uh, there, there was a bunch of anthology horror movies that followed, like Trilogy of Blood. Yeah. And, and, you know, eventually we'd come on to where, you know, Creepshow did the anthology, Tales from the Hood did the anthology. And that's kind of a lost, like, horror art. Or Cat's I'm thinking of Cat's Eye, too, had the same kind of thing. But what's great about those is that all the characters are extremely disposable. Because you tell a story about 25 minutes long, and so... You know, most people are going to die in this story. You know, so it's that's one of the fun things about those those anthologies. You have a bunch of stories in one kind of movie, and so you can make it scarier because you can't get the people won't get too attached to the characters because they're just going to they're going to die at the end of twenty five minutes. Well, and it, and for that very same reason is one of the reasons why it's really difficult, and there haven't been that many anthologies on television because television is all about being attached to characters. Mm-hmm. And finding out what, what hijinks they're going to get into next week. So if you start lopping off the characters every week with a different story, that it's hard to get a fan base. So that's why there have been so few, relatively few, anthology series done on television. Um, but you're right. Uh, the beauty is you can kill those people. <laughs> and, <laughs> right, you can usually do. You want. <laughs> so you had recurring characters in the sense that there was the framework, the the Midnight Society that would tell the stories and, and bookend everything. So was that kind of a design thing as well, as far as the development of the show goes, that we need people to latch on to? We need characters that will be there week in, week out? Or was it just simply an interesting way to frame the anthology series? Uh, both, but, but really yeah. the, the former um, for the very reason is that you, you, need, you the viewer, need needs some touchstones that, that you can come back to. Um, and, and interestingly enough, I, I made that decision for that reason, and then to create this, these kids sitting around a campfire that tell the stories, but that's really the jumping off point for the story itself. Um, they served a number of purposes. One is the lead into the story. They also served as the relief valve to find out if kids really got scared and watching the show, you always end up back at the campfire to say, oh, this kid mm-hmm. just made it up. It was all just made up. Um, gotcha. But but really, it was what you said before. It, it's that you, you need that touchstone. You need the recurring character. And so, so as much as it, it was the smart decision and the right decision to do that, once I had done it, I immediately discounted the value of it. Because, mm-hmm. and what I mean by that sure. is, to me, the interesting parts of those shows weren't the campfires. Mm-hmm. If anything, they became a nuisance. It's like, oh, God, we got to do another campfire. <laughs> They're all about those little movies that we made, that we had to create right, beginning, middles, and ends, and new characters, and all that kind of stuff. And and to go to the Midnight Society, it's like, oh, God, I got to figure out with this thing. And, and we shot those things all, every season, we shot them all bunched together. Sure. So so the, the cast was in and out in a week and a half. That was it. So it kind of surprised me. And that's only because I, I, I discounted my own brilliance to begin with, <laughs> that viewers latched onto those kids. And, and, and a lot of viewers, even going back, I mean, this 90s nostalgia is such a big thing now. You know, to me, it was last week, but, but it's such a big thing now. That what so many fans of that show talk about were the various incarnations of the Midnight Society. And I'm sure, thinking, sure. who cares? <laughs> they, I mean, no one spoke about, wow, Rod Serling's intro of that episode was really good that week. <laughs> you know, it was important. It set it up. But then we should go away and then see the episode about the, the scary thing on the wing looking at Captain Kirk. <laughs> but, but as I finally accepted over the years that I was totally wrong. I was right to begin with, but then I was wrong later on to discount it because they became the, the 
entrance to the story. They became the thing that, that viewers could latch onto and love those characters so much. And, and at least I had the foresight to give each of the characters a different type of story that they would tell that you knew when that character told a story, it was either going to be a truly horrifying boy story or it was going to be a romance or it was going to be a creepy science fiction thing or whatever it happened to be. You kind of got to know which character is going to tell what kind of story. So I, I maintained that throughout the series. Um, but really the, the, the entry point was to say, let's make sure the, the, the evolution of it was a little bit different in that my partner, Ned Candle and I, we created the show and it was originally designed to be a direct to video, um, bedtime stories for lazy parents, which, which <laughs> means we were going to get some old guy, some old actor who was out of work, but everyone knew, you know who, and we'd sit him in a big easy chair in front of a roaring fire with a big book that said fairy tales on it. And he would read fairy tales and we'd record them. And then we'd make millions by selling these VHS tapes to lazy parents who didn't feel like reading to their kids that night. And they pop in the tape and say, I'm going to go watch TV. You listen to Alistair Cook <laughs> read. Right. The problem came in with what kind of stories are we going to tell? What are the fairy tales? Like, well, it's like three little pigs, a little bit. That's not interesting. <laughs> you know, Goldilocks. That's not fun. So my partner asked me the, the question which started it all. He said, what kind of stories did you like when you were a kid? And I said, I, I like scary stories. So suddenly fairy tales became scary tales. <laughs> Rather than the book saying fairy tales, it says scary tales. But then it became weird because we didn't want to have the crypt keeper telling scary stuff. Sure. <laughs> You're a little boy, I'm going to tell you a story about the, you know, that, that didn't, it was not it at all because it was really for kids. So once we lost the idea of the old guy, it's like, well, who tells scary stories and they themselves aren't scary? Like, well, you tell them around a campfire. That's the classic mm -hmm. thing. So then that became the Midnight Society. And then it started getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And we realized, well, wait a minute, this is, this is more than direct-to-video. This could be a TV show. And that's when we pitched it to Nickelodeon. Mm -hmm. And they said, no, this is horrible. They said, you, you, you can't scare little kids. And I was like, oh, yes, I can. No, no, no we'll do it right before bed. It's <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's kind of how it grew. But, but really the idea is if it's going to be a show, you need to have that touchstone. And uh, never realizing how true that was, because that's what, what viewers latched onto. Well, that makes me think a question I wanted to ask was, you know, putting a show on Nickelodeon, was there ever a point, because I was thinking about this as I was watching the, the tale of Station 109, because it's Gilbert Gottfried, right? It's <laughs> Gilbert Gottfried in there, and he does the whole voice. And it's, <laughs> and it's funny, because when he switches to the radio voice, then it's like a James Mason impersonation kind of thing. And it's, but then it's Gilbert Gottfried doing this crazy voice. And I kept thinking about his role in The Aristocrats. Did you guys ever see that oh, movie? Oh, gosh, yeah. Where he tells this vulgar joke that goes on for like five minutes. And it's, I mean, I think it's hilarious. But I kept thinking about what if they just let him off on these kids, you know, and let him do his <laughs> shtick. And was there ever a point when, you know, you would send something to Nickelodeon and they're like, no way. You know, like there was a, they're like, you got to cut this. We got to lose the part where, you know, Gilbert Gottfried strangles a child to death. <laughs> you know, what were the, that particular episode, Wendy and I just watched yesterday and we were looking, watching it thinking and saying, this is really creepy. There's some really unnerving moments that oh I don't think gosh. you'd see in kids shows today. Well, when the guy yeah. comes out and he's going to hell and he's like, you got the wrong guy. Right. He's running and he's terrified. Um, you know, I was like, oh my God, like I'm scared for that <laughs> <Yeah>. guy. <So laughs> he's got to go to hell. Uh, it, Gilbert had a, a great ad lib in that show that 
that I, I didn't direct that episode, so I wasn't there for the shooting. So I just saw the footage afterward, and and when I saw that, it was a spit take for me. It, it, it was it was when I think the kid, not not Ryan, but the younger brother, is confronting Gilbert. And and the premise for people who haven't seen it and they're listening to this podcast is that uh, when you die, there's this radio station one hundred nine point one that calls you to to come and if you're a lost soul you go to this radio station and that's your conduit to the afterlife so this kid accident they think he died he's mistaken for another guy who actually did die so this living kid gets sent to the radio station and at one point the kid says to to gilbert who is who is the dmv like uh expediter who's moving people through to the afterlife he, he says you got the wrong guy and the line that i wrote was um or actually scott peters wrote that that episode a, a terrific writer director uh, he wrote, it, it, I'll try to do it in Gilbert's voice. He goes, if I had a nickel for every time somebody said to me, you got the wrong guy. And that was where it ended. It, it, that was, it was like a dot, dot, dot. If I had a nickel for every time, Gilbert took to the next step and he said, if I had a nickel for every time somebody was going to say that to me, it's like, well, wh- what am I going to do with all that? I'm dead. What am I going to do with a nickel? Buy gum? <laughs> I'm not going to buy gum with it. <laughs> that was an ad lib. Uh, but in answer to your question, the answer simply is no. Nickelodeon no never stopped. Well, I mean, we, I think we edited ourselves quite a bit, too. You know, sure, we, sure. we weren't there to try to you know, push the envelope as far as we could. Uh, the right. only concerns they had were, and this applies to all shows, not just scary shows. It was about imitatable behavior. It's like, they, okay. this, again, remember, this is a kid's show. So we don't want to show anything that a kid's going to do. You know, don't try this at home, kids. They're, they're not going to try it at home. So one example of that was... Um, the tale me, of the kid that drinks bleach. Well, <laughs> that one never made it to air. And, and believe me, there are plenty of things that happened in that show that are imitatable that, that they let go. <laughs> but, but the one thing... Here's a show about kids sitting around a campfire. The one thing we never showed in 91 episodes was someone lighting the campfire. We didn't want to show kids uh. how, to, how to strike a match. They didn't want someone saying, well, I learned this on Are You Afraid of the Dark? And now my house burned down. So, oh, so they, well, see, and you train them in the opening credits that the matches, they just light themselves. You just hold it there. It's ma- well, <laughs> I, well, I, I, well it's fine. I'm glad you said that because if there was sometimes we got little rumblings and it was later on in the run of the series because sometimes conservative people have problems with witchcraft and, and if it's easier to get into the occult. They start, you know, really hyper kind of Christian people have some issues with that. Like Harry Potter had all sorts of problems with that. Mm -hmm, So we were getting little rumblings of that. It's like, you know, can you really? My standard 101 answer was, oh, oh, no, it's it's magic. There we go. It's it's magic. (laughs) Magic suddenly is the catch-all for, oh, it's okay, it's magic. Suddenly it's it's, it's like Blackstone image. It's it's Houdini, you know, suddenly that's okay. It's so, acceptable. So, uh, yeah, magic is okay. If it's black magic, that's not good. But, or or uh, I, think, I think maybe, I, I seem to remember having a problem with the word voodoo. They said you couldn't use voodoo, uh, the word voodoo, even though there's plenty of voodoo being shown. Um, but, right. but 99.9% of the time, we could do whatever the heck we wanted wow. to do. Wow. And, and, and I think we were responsible, so it wasn't like we're... But we killed sure. kids. I mean, we, it's... So, it, actually, you said something, Scott, that I'm not so sure that show could be made today. Um, and, and I base it on the fact that I've pitched a lot of shows like that and, and got the same reaction as when we first pitched Are You Afraid of the Dark, which is to say, you can't do that. And I'm like, I did. What do you mean you can't do it? <laughs> you want to see hundreds of hours of programming? He said, I did do it. 
But there's a conservative thing that's gone through the world right now. So if, if Ari Frey of the Dark World were to be made today, it would have to go in one of two directions. Because we tread that line. That show was a show for tweens. Yeah. You know, tween being in between being a kid and a teen. That was the kind of the target audience. So it would either have to be a kid show, which is more Scooby-Doo. Frankly, even Goosebumps is more kid-like, kiddie-like, because sure. mm-hmm. it's all kind of tongue-in-cheek and silly and whatnot. Or it would have to go heavy-duty. It would, it would have to go older. It would have to go into teen. Um, but treading that line between teen and tween has been a real hard sell for me because people just they get, they get scared off. No, uh, no ironic line in, yeah. intended. Or ironic <laughs> well, line and intended. it's funny we're you know we're talking about there like you know we didn't kill any kids or anything. Well, Grimm's fairy tales did all yeah, yeah. the time. <laughs> like every other fa- you know something horrible happens. To, uh, Hansel and Gretel when they run into the witch, it's you know she's putting them in the oven. Yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> so it just you know it's funny that our standards and stuff like that's like well you know we'll tell these stories and everything and what might be appropriate um, we're like well it's just a kid story today you know with the visuals and stuff it it changes how people perceive it and uh, sometimes well quote scares them away well my, my that was my other standard comeback one is it's magic <laughs> and the other one was if you're gonna have a ghost story somebody's got to die. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) or else there would be no ghost (laughs) so i mean and some of the kids in the show even though it wasn't on camera some of the some of the deaths in that show were truly kind of gruesome not that there's any pleasant death but but there's one episode where it was about a girl who was locked in a closet and people didn't know she was there and she essentially starved to death in this closet you know we picked her up after she was a ghost we didn't see her you know clawing at the the thing but uh, so so it's all in answer to how do you do it for tweens is like you don't necessarily show the gruesome thing Mm. you you kind of refer to it in the past tense like oh that person died and you kind of you know you know it's like it's like curious george curious george is horrifying there's one line in the first curious george book (laughs) Well, George had a lovely life in, in the jungle until the man with the white hat, the slave owner, came, came and, and took him <laughs> yeah, away. Right. And George was sad for a minute, but he was fine after that. You know, just bless him, just go, go past just it. Gloss over it, yeah. Just gloss over it, everything's fine. Well, you, you brought up uh, Rod Sterling recently, and which I got to talk to you a little bit about. Uh, you went from Nickelodeon to Disney to do the uh, Tower of Terror. You were tasked with creating a movie based on a ride. Talk a little bit about that, if you will. And if you mm-hmm. ever went to, I, I guess, what kind of, what elements of the story were in place? How much, you know, was, were you able to play with it? And did you ever go to the Hollywood Tower Apartments, which is allegedly where the elevator is that the ride was based on? Oh. The, the uh, that, yes and yes and yes and yes. Uh, th- Good. That right. ride actually was based on a lot of places. Um, in fact, the place that I went to that, actually gave the real place that I went to that actually I caught my breath because it was so much like the Hollywood Tower Hotel was actually the Biltmore Hotel in Coral Gables, Florida. Mm. That's what they based mm-hmm. a lot of the actual architecture of the ride about. And walking into that lobby, it was just like, whoa, that's kind of, <laughs> this is eerie. Um, the, the reason I, I did that movie was um, Disney had just brought back or about we're about to bring back the wonderful world of disney on on sunday nights on abc and it was going to be movie night so sunday night was movie night and a lot of the movies they were going to show were their classic movies yeah the the existing library um but they also were going to produce a number of originals 
And what they didn't want to have happen was, well, everyone watches Toy Story. And then there's some crappy original that no one's going to watch. And then they're going to watch uh, Finding Nemo. And then sure. there's some crappy movie no one's going to watch. So they tried to make movies that had more of a splash factor than just a, a Disney movie. Um, so one of the things, I don't know who came up with the idea, but they said, let's, uh, let's make a movie based on a ride. This is, at the time, Pirates of the Caribbean was in development, but as an, okay. anim, as an animated movie. I oh, saw wow. all the, the, the character designs from all the pirates that were going to be in the Pirates of the Caribbean movie it is cartoon animation. Um, I also believe that the Space Mountain movie was in development as well. Well, when you saw the Pirates from the Caribbean, did the Captain Sparrow, Jack Sparrow, did it look like Keith Richards or whatever at the time? Yeah. You're like, oh, that, that, I don't think that was even a character that I don't remember what the characters were. They were they were very cartoony kind of. Um, they they but it wasn't there wasn't a Jack Sparrow. If I don't remember, I don't remember there being a Jack Sparrow. And if there was, it wouldn't have stuck with me because it was you know so long before Johnny Depp created Jack Sparrow. <laughs> sure. Um, so so one of the things they said, oh, we can make a Tower of Terror movie. And they found me as like, oh, here's the guy that knows how to tread that line between scary and horrifying. So they brought me in and they said, can you make a movie out of this thing? And so I, I met with the guys who, uh, who created the ride. Oh, and, cool. and, and it was the, the thing, I, I remember two things about that meeting so well. You know, they gave me all the backstory of, of what the design of the ride was and how they did it. And one of the things I came away with from that meeting was how much those guys loved that ride. And how oh, cool. proud they were of that ride. In fact, they're going to be at Midnight Scream. Uh, or at yeah, they're going to be a panel. The next day. I think, uh, I think on the same day as ours, they'll be uh, earlier in the day. I think they're like noon or so, one of the first ones of the day. And we'll be a few hours after that. I, I, I hope that they relate their, I'm sure they will, their, their love of that ride and their pride in that ride, uh, the way they related it to me. Um, one of the things I said, which actually turned out to be pretty funny, and, and this is for all Disney files out there, uh, or Disney theme park files out there. Um, one of the things I said was this ride was so expensive to make that we'll, they'll never make another one. Mm. Um, well, then, and I, I don't remember the timing of this whole thing, but Disney made California Adventure Theme Park, which is right next to Disneyland, and it wasn't doing very well. And so they thought, we've yeah. got to do something to do it. And one of the things they did is, ah, they built a Tower of Terror there. There you um, go. But it was a less expensive version of the Tower of Terror. Ah. So, and in fact, it just got reskinned to be the Guardians of the Galaxy ride. And um, I'm okay with that because- I was going to ask. The, the ride in, well, I'm semi-okay with it. <laughs> yeah. the, 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 the ride in California wasn't as good as the ride in Florida was <clears throat> because they eliminated about a third of the ride. Oh, wow. The, 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 the concept for anyone who knows the ride who's been on the ride, the concept is this, this hotel, 1937, and these five people get on the elevator, and, and they go up in the elevator, and some, suddenly the elevator is hit with some magical lightning that they don't explain until I make the movie. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the elevator's destroyed, and they disappear, and they shut the hotel down for the next 60 years, and we're opening it up again for you tonight. And, and they really have it branded as if it's an episode of The Twilight Zone. And, and the reason they did that is because uh, the ride was originally built in the uh, what would then was called the Disney MGM Studios down in Florida, mm. which is their theme park. You know, they have Epcot and they have Magic Kingdom and all that kind of stuff. And they created this movie-centric theme park. There really was nothing movie-centric about this Tower of Terror ride. So someone came up with the idea. It's like, 
okay, why don't we make it movie-centric by making it an ep- a lost episode of The Twilight Zone? So that was all part of the evolution of, of making that ride feel like it made sense to be at the Disney MGM, studio, which is now just called Disney Studios, I think. Um, interestingly enough, when, when I was tasked with making the movie, they said, you cannot refer to The Twilight Zone at all. It oh, is not wow. the Twilight Zone. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that, and I was fine with that, it's fine. He says, but the reason for that is <laughs> Twilight Zone is still partially owned by CBS. I think it's, I think I'm, I'm, I'm on shaky ground here, but it's partially owned by CBS, partially owned by the Serling estate. Um, uh, Disney Wonderful World at Disney was on ABC. Yeah. So, so <laughs> Twilight Zone would not be cleared. So it was just no. Tower of Terror. That's it, which is fine by me because then I wasn't shackled by having to make a, an episode of the Twilight Zone. You could um, have some cheesy Rod Serling impersonator, like, yeah. come out, like, because you couldn't show him smoking anymore. Yeah. Like, right, at the beginning, right, right. you know, like, so, you know, you're like, it, it's better to start with a clean slate. Well, exactly. He's actually not a Rod Serling impersonator. It's actually Rod Serling. The voice is a Rod oh. Serling impersonator. Okay. But they rotoscoped an episode of Twilight Zone. So in that little movie you see at the beginning of the ride, it's Rod Serling. He's only on camera oh, for, cool. for, like, five seconds because they put words in his mouth. Sure, um, but, sure. but that's actually Rod Serling. With somebody else's, with somebody else doing oh, the voice of Rod Serling. Um, so, so what they gave to me was, so here's this ride. Um, uh, go. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay. So, you know, the budgets for these movies weren't huge. So um, I thought, okay, I can't do a period movie. I can't do two hours of 1937. That's not going to work. So I decided, okay. Let's pretend like this was a real hotel. I mean, I, it, and that was one of the other things. It's like, it's like, it doesn't, don't say it's a ride. You know, Johnny Depp does not actually ride the ride in the pirate's thing. <laughs> it's not a ride. It's well, I've been watching the wrong movies. <laughs> yeah, right. It's, yeah, at some point you want to see it's a small world show. Um, so it's not a ride. And, and as best as you can, try to emulate the ride experience, which means an elevator has to drop. Sure. Like, yeah. Okay, fine. Um, so, in knowing I couldn't do a period piece, I said, okay, what if I just say this event happened in 1937, which we actually depict and recreate and depict, but then we flash forward to the present, and it's about present-day people trying to solve the mystery of what happened back in 1937, and solve the mystery of this haunted hotel. So, so 90% of the movie takes place in the present. Um, and, and one of the fun things is that we, uh, that's a, it's a really cool ride. If you've ever seen it, it's or if you've awesome. ever, if anyone's ever gone on it, it's, it's just the attention to detail is just phenomenal. It is just great. Um, so I thought we'd be shooting at the ride cause there's no way we could, reproduce that lobby and all that, that kind of look on the kind sure. of budget we had. So I did go and answer your question, Scott, I did go down to Florida and I rode the ride and I saw this. I was incredibly impressed with it. And, and Disney had studios down there. So I assumed we we're going to be shooting in, in Florida and, and working on their in their studios and their sound stages and then working at the ride because we can't rebuild this ride because it's so expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had met a producer as I was still in pre-production and he said, what are you working on? And I said, well, I told him about this movie. And he said, where are you going to shoot it? And I said, well, we're going to be down in Florida. The stage is there. And he said, uh, no, you're not. Huh. Like, why? What do you mean? 
if you remember, Tom Hanks had produced this HBO series from the Earth to the Moon. Mm-hmm. And oh, yeah. that all the stage work was done at the Disney MGM Studios on their sound stages. And essentially, Tom Hanks had those stages booked for a year and full of models of Gemini capsules and Apollo capsules and all that kind of stuff. It was like, yeah, you're not going to be shooting those sound stages. Like, oh my God. So then I talking to the theme park people, I said, okay, so we're going to be able to shoot at your ride, right? And they're like, oh, absolutely. Yeah, no problem. But you can't get into the ride until midnight and you got to be gone by 5 a.m. Oh, wow. Because that's a short production. Yeah, day. yeah. We will not shut down this ride to do production. So, so imagine if someone saved up all their money from, from Madison, mm. Wisconsin, <laughs> and, and, and they flew to Disney World and they wanted to do Tower of Terror. And there's a big sign that says, sorry, closed today for filming. Oh, gosh. It's yeah, sense. not going to happen. Well, we saw what happened at the end of National Lampoon's vacation when that happens. Yes. <laughs> you, know, you see what else. happens. <laughs> then right. he, goes, he goes postal the, on the, these people. The moose at the front should have told you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. We're closed for repair. Um, so what we ended up doing was two things. We... Um, in the original script I wrote, it took place all over the, this hotel. I actually limited the amount of number of scenes that were going to take place in this lobby, figuring we weren't going to be able to shoot in this lobby too much. But now we had to build a set. So we had to mm-hmm. reproduce that lobby in Los Angeles. And gotcha. because it was so expensive, it was like literally a quarter of our budget for the entire movie. Suddenly I took all the scenes that were happening in all the other areas of the hotel and I lumped them all into that lobby. Thank goodness those Disney Imagineers made an incredible lobby that it lent itself for all sorts of scenes to take place in little nooks and crannies. And so I shot the hell out of that lobby all over the place. <laughs> uh, the only thing that was actually shot in Florida was uh, the exteriors of the ride itself because we couldn't afford to build a model that looked like that ride, that kind of detail. Um, so it, it, a fun thing, if you ever see that movie, it's, they still run it on Disney Channel and get the DVD, but if you ever see that movie... There are shots where um, Steve Gutenberg is the star of that movie. And there are shots where camera's looking down at him as he's walking onto the grounds of the hotel and he goes through the old gate and he walks in. Those are all shot in Los Angeles. But then he looks up at the hotel, cut to his point of view. It's the ride that we shot in Florida. And I I wish, you know, things you think of after the fact, it's like, I wish while we were shooting those shots, those POV shots of this hotel that i wish i had had the camera operator tilt down because if you would tilt i mean what you're seeing and you see on screen is like a creepy old hotel and there's no sounds like a far off raven sound you know it's eerie and it's (laughs) empty but if you had tilted down you would have seen eight thousand people on line sure (laughs) through the queue waiting to get on this ride jostling us like oh you're making a movie yes we're making a movie (laughs) so so uh if you imagine just the tilt down there are a thousand people looking at us going what you doing um, How many times did you go on the ride? Well, um, it, 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 going back to what I said before about the ride in California not being as good because they made a cheaper version. Um, I, I went on the ride in, in Florida and fearing this is going to be horrifying. This is when yeah. we scouted it. And, and it wasn't that hard. The drop, it's a drop ride for anybody who doesn't know what it is. It's a drop ride. The, the, the elevator falls and you fall and you drop. And maybe I was expecting too much, but it wasn't that scary. From the time I scouted it to the time that we went back to shoot, and I took the whole crew on the ride, um, they reprogrammed the ride. It's actually an Otis elevator. 
And and you're not yeah. actually falling. It, you're actually being pulled down. There's like two pulleys that pulls up and down, all that kind of stuff. So they can completely program it to go up and then down and then up and down and then but and then it's just and uh, so I said, yeah, this is nothing. You just kind of fall. It's like, well, they'd reprogrammed it. By the time I got off that ride, my hands were shaking. Like, I wasn't expecting <laughs> that. But then going to California, um, they built the Tower of Terror here. And I, I had to take my daughter on this ride. She was young. But I met my wife making this movie. So oh, awesome. I said to oh, my okay. daughter, not for this ride, you wouldn't exist. <laughs> so we <laughs> got to go on the ride. So I took her on the ride, but she was scared. She's a little kid and I'm mean. So I took her on the ride, but I said, don't <laughs> like worry. I'm going to talk you through this ride. I'm going to tell you exactly what's going to happen before it happens. In the ride in Florida, the whole concept is that the main elevator got hit by lightning and these magical things happen. They disappear. But the ride is the service elevator. So, so what you do is you get on the service elevator. And what happens is if you're in the ride in Florida, you know, the, the elevator Close the doors close. And then you go up and the doors open up and you look down this eerie corridor of the hotel and you see the five ghosts kind of doing eerie things and beckoning to you and whatnot. And the doors close again. And the elevator goes up again. And the doors open up and the ride goes forward through the twilight zone. You hear the twilight zone music playing and it's eerie and you're looking all the, you see the equals MC square, you know, right out of the twilight yeah, yeah. zone. <laughs> and it's like, nee, 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 nee. and you're, what, what you're doing is story wise of the ride, you're moving from the service elevator shaft through the twilight zone to the main elevator shaft where the accident was. So once you go through all this thing, you get to the end, the doors open and that's where you fall. In California, <laughs> get on the ride. Doors close. And I say to my daughter, hey, doors are going to close. Then we're going to go up and it's going to open up and you're going to see the ghosts there. That's what happens. And doors open up and you see the eerie ghosts and they beckon you and they say, come into the ride, here you go. The doors close. And I said to my daughter, now it's going to open up and the doors and we're going to go forward. The ride goes up, doors open and you fall right there. (laughs) (laughs) They they eliminated the whole forward motion, probably cutting millions out of having to build sure. the forward right. motion of the ride. <laughs> so the ride in Florida goes up, over, down, back to the beginning, up, over, down. Ride in, in California, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. <laughs> so uh, she was not happy with me at, at, at that kid. moment, nor was I. because So, it's, so not it's, only was it unexpected, but, oh, God, something went wrong. We weren't supposed <laughs> to fall right, yet. We're really <laughs> falling. But it doesn't, and, and being the stickler I am with supernatural stories and whatnot, the ride in California doesn't hold true to the, to the story, not my story, the, sto- the story they created for the ride, which is you're going, the, the main elevator is destroyed, you're going up in the service elevator, which still works. And in fact, I had to jump through hoops in my movie to simulate that <laughs> experience where the main elevator is not working, but there's a service elevator. And so I have to, a whole dual thing going in the movie where, and they have to jump from the main service elevator into the mm-hmm. main elevator, what's gonna fall? And the one in California, doesn't do any of that so let the guardians have it yeah <laughs> there you go <laughs> that's fine the, the raccoon can go on the ride yeah. <laughs> yes let the raccoon go on the ride and that's fine well we should be wrapping up soon i do have just one quick question uh i don't know if there's going to lead to anything or not but you frequently hear good stories about bizarre things that happen on set especially if it's mm. a uh what is it landis movie oh, that's but right. um or, or a poltergeist movie it, even uh, Virginia, I think, with Haunting in Connecticut, Virginia Madsen had some spooky things go on. Did anything bizarre ever happen on set 
in the seven seasons of uh, Are You Afraid of the Dark? Um, quick answer, no. Um, but but I, I will relate one thing, and, and Scott, I'm sure you can you can attest to this <laughs> that um, hauntings, I think, are very much about places, and like that my house growing up in, um, it was about that place. It whatever happened to that place, whatever connection a spirit had to that place, it was about that place, and it was as much about the entity as it is about the place. So I've been in, I've gone to places, I mean, you, Scott, you know this better than anyone, Scott. I'm sure you go to some places where you know the second you walk in, something's up. You just yeah. feel it. Or not. Sure. When, when we shot uh, Tower of Terror, uh, again, we shot a lot of it in Los Angeles. And we shot a lot of the movie in the old Ambassador Hotel. Oh my gosh. Which that's, uh, that's where John, uh, yeah, RFK was shot, RFK which is was unfortunately shot. also gone, and now it's a school. Which and that, it's that a school be an interesting school now. Yeah, I was going to say. So w- when it was closed, in whatever year it was closed, I think in the 80s it might have shut down, it was literally like whoever owned it walked away. And that became a yeah. major movie set. It's funny, walking down the corridors, you see a little spike marks on the ground from all the different films that had shot there. And look up all the films that were shot there. It's incredible the number of films that were shot at this place. Yeah. So we shot a lot of Tower of Terror there. And, and it's eerie going into this hotel because it, it to use a cliche, it, is an ab- it was an abandoned hotel. And, and in fact, we shot right near where Bobby Kennedy was shot uh, yeah. in, in the kitchen. And... Um, in fact, there's there's a wall there that was covered up with plywood, and the guy who ran the the, the facility said, "Yeah, the FBI had come in, and there were some bullet shrapnels that were in the wall there that they came in and they actually buzzsawed out that section of wall, and then closed it up with with uh, plywood, and that plywood was still there. So, mm-hmm. um, and then plus, just what you know, if if walls could talk, you know, this is the place. So. Oh, yeah. So at one point, I went up to uh, the guy who ran the place, who was the facility manager, and I said, there's, there's some stories, right? You, you got you to gotta tell me some stories about this place. And he said, do you want me to tell you the truth? And I was like, yeah. And he said, nothing. <laughs> nothing, <laughs> nothing has ever happened here. No one's had any experiences. It has happened. It, it, I mean, even with an assassination, there was nothing. Sure. So, so I actually tried to scare Kirsten Dunst once. She was in the movie. So I, I kind of lured her into a, 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 one of those sitting rooms and jumped out at her. But, but I, I think that's, <laughs> that's the scariest scary, thing that happened. Cruel. It's the scariest thing that happened is I jumped out at somebody. But, but um, I think that does speak to the fact that not every place is haunted. It may look haunted. Mm-hmm. It may seem haunted. It's not necessarily haunted. Uh, and this was a place that just was, was not a vortex of, this sure, was, yeah, this yeah. was not the Dakota in Ghostbusters where there was, the, right. w- was w- what did Dan Aykroyd call it? Uh, this is Spook Central or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it should have been, but it wasn't. So, so uh, I, I think that it much speaks to the validity of these places that are like that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's not just about the people who come in expecting to find something because I went in there expecting to find something and mm-hmm. there was nothing to find. Um, yeah, and I always find I find it fascinating. Like on paper, that place should be crazy haunted for all of these reasons that we right. think we know, but obviously we don't know at all. There's some element missing of what makes a place haunted or not. Yeah, what well, is you it? know, it's it's funny when you mentioned Coral Gables in there uh, earlier, the Biltmore Hotel, and that I'd taken a, a a haunted tour of Coral Gables just last year, 
And it was like what we were talking about. Like the tour guide would go by a building and go, well, I, this should be haunted. And we're like, yeah. And she's like, yeah, it should be. It's been around for a long time. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, you're killing me. Is there like a money back guarantee on right. that tour. <laughs> Where is the, you know, is there's an experience here. You bet. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, you're, you gotta be kidding me. You're teasing me. So it just made me think about that, that places we expect you're like, well, look at that scary old house. And sometimes that scary old house was just built in the 60s and it just ended up in a fire. They didn't take care so, of it. Yeah. Right. Or, you know, it's a scary trailer that was built in 1995. So uh, it's it's got to be more than just history and expectation. And I think that's a lot of the trick when you're trying to discern, you know, what's what's the kind of place that has those, not necessarily a vortex or spook central, but at least the weird energy where you feel it when you walk in as compared to uh, just another dump. <laughs> I, I, I felt that there's a hotel in Denver. Uh, Scott, do you know this hotel, the Brown Hotel in, in Denver, Colorado? No, and I'll have to ask around. It, it, it's a, um, it's, it's like, a, it's really old. I think it was built in the 1800s, but it's, it's unique in that it's actually got an atrium, which you think is something that was designed in the 70s, but it, was, it does have an sure. atrium. So, you know, you can imagine a whole center courtyard with the, with the balconies going around there, but really old, like old West type thing. And I, I stayed there a number of times if I'm on a book tour or something like that. And every time I'm in that hotel and I'm walking down the corridors, I know I'm going to see those twins from The Shining. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's, you walk around corner and every time I'm walking down those corridors, I'm totally creeped out. And I thought it's just me. You know, it's like my family back in my house. Maybe it's just me. And I read an article a while later that when uh, the Lakers would go to play the Denver Nuggets, Kobe Bryant would not stay in that hotel. Wow. It was just, there was some vibe in there. <laughs> There's something going on. I don't know what the story is. I'm sure there is a story. I don't know what it was, but man, I, I felt it. For Kobe playing in Denver, there's all sorts of bad energy right, type I of was, stories going I was going to say, if, I think ghosts are the least thing that haunt yeah. him when he comes there. But uh, no, that's fantastic. That's, we gotta, Thank you for spending uh, a little time with us. And yeah. if people want to check out your books and learn more about uh, DJ McHale, where's the best place they should go find out, at least for true information? Where, oh, yeah, where's right. the best place they should go? <laughs> oh, great. Thank you. I mean, uh, my website is djmikhailbooks.com. Um, but certainly on, on Facebook and um, Twitter, those, those are the two that I use a lot. Facebook is DJ McHale. It's very, very clever of me to use that as a, uh, <laughs> as a name, as DJ McHale. But all the information about my books, and not so much about the films, but about the books are on uh, djmikhailbooks.com. So, uh, Come on out. Actually, I've got a new spooky series that I'm doing right now called The Library, which is for middle, middle readers. It's about a haunted library where uh, the stories are unfinished and kids go in and they can actually enter the books and, and finish, uh, finish the spooky stories. So that's, oh, uh, that's cool. kind of the book project I'm working on now. And then the, first one, the next one's coming out in October. So, uh, so I, I just can't get away. It's what comes out. What can I say? <laughs> yeah. I no, and that's great because it's funny you talk about those, those alternative kind of books because I was thinking about that when I was looking at your IMDb page and I saw a bunch of Encyclopedia Brown episodes. Yeah. And that was always the first one, you know, that you would have the thing where you'd have to go to the end of the book and like flip it upside down mm -hmm. to find out the answer to the mystery. And as Bugs Meanie, like it's probably going to be him because he's such a jerk face. <laughs> well, well, that was a challenge because that book, those, those mysteries are like three pages long. It's like, and uh, now make a half hour mystery out of that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> do that. Well, thanks. We'll be sure to include your links in our show notes page for this episode. And uh, we also want to thank Scott Marcus. Yes. From what's your ghost .com. Oh, thanks for giving the opportunity. I've wanted to have this conversation, but I figured it would be too grand just to have it at a coffee shop. So let's share right. it with everyone. Uh -huh. <laughs> well, and everybody uh, who's going to be in Southern California on 
Is it going to be July 28th? And, and, and if you're 20th? not, change your plans. <laughs> right. I was going to uh, say, go out, go west, young man. Yeah, it's uh, 29th and 30th. Uh, our panel is on the 29th, and that is midsummerscream.org. I believe there still are tickets, but this is um, this is a big event. So this is going to be a highly attended event. There's a lot of cool stuff going on. Lots, lots, lots to see. One of the neat things is they've got this huge convention center, and they have half of it cordoned off so that all these different haunted attractions can put on demos. So you can ah. actually go through some haunted house type stuff. Cool. It sounds like a very interactive. It, it's the comic kind of scary. Of fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so DJ, we're gonna have to bring you back on again to talk about your books, it's like Pendragon, like of course it's Arthurian legends and some of the inspiration behind that. So maybe when we get into that, we'll invite you back. But thank you very much for spending your day with us. Thanks, it, DJ. It was my pleasure. This was fun. The theme song for Are You Afraid of the Dark does a perfect job of setting a spooky tone for each of the episodes that follow it. So for this week's song, we decided to create our own take on the theme, originally created by Jeff Zahn. This is Sunspot's remix of Are You Afraid of the Dark's title song, and it's called You Are Afraid of the Dark. For listening to today's episode, you can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side.
Yes, thank you indeed for listening to today's episode. And an extra special thanks to the members of our Patreon community. We really do appreciate everything that you do for us, and we're happy to have you in the See You on the Other Side family. An extra special shout out to our friend Ned, who has donated at the level where he gets an individual shout every single episode. So thanks, everybody. And if you'd like to join that community, you can do so at othersidepodcast.com slash donate. And we hope that everybody has a wonderful week. Your storage is horrifying.